The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Sunday, December 4th, 2022. That's it, Rios. Let's go to work. Hey everybody, this is your host Peter with the 22nd Digest of this second volume covering Monday, November 28th through Friday, December 2nd, 2022. Meanwhile Monday, a follow-up, part two, taking a tangent from my ongoing examination of Dick Giordano's Meanwhile column in DC Comics that began in 1983. This is a continuation to the Digest for October 23rd, where I started to take a look at the first DC sampler from the summer of 1983. Part one was the first eight spreads up through the center spread featuring the new Teen Titans by Wolfman and Perez. And we'll finish it out in this segment with the remaining seven spreads. And I'm doing this because Dick Giordano talked about the DC sampler in uh, the previous Meanwhile column. And I decided to, you know, do a little detour and take a look at the DC sampler to see if all the things that, you know, Giordano thought that the sampler was going to be used for actually, you know, reach their goals. Things like the promotional value, uh, titles that DC was, was spotlighting, not only the titles, but the characters, the creative teams, and, you know, how original were the spreads. Um, all of the spreads were also meant to be done by the creative teams of respective titles. Some are a little ad-driven, some tell a little story, some are basically status quo or character descriptions, and some of them are just straight-up double-page pinups. So let's begin. Let's begin with the spread after the New Teen Titans spread. And this is a focus on DC's war comics, G.I. Combat and Sergeant Rock, specifically. This is by Robert Kaniger, Joe Kubert, and Adam Kubert on letters. This is a mix of um, character descriptions and, and title descriptions, but there's also a little story to it. So we have the major creators being drawn and being lined up you know, in front of a firing squad. So we have Murray Boltonoff, the editor of G.I. Combat, Sam Glansman, the artist on Haunted Tank, Joe Kubert, so the Sergeant Rock co-creator and also the editor at the time and, and cover artist and sometimes artist, Frank Redondo, who is the current artist on Sergeant Rock as of 1983, and then they drag in Robert Kaniger, who apparently was like a fugitive. He is the creator and writer of Sergeant Rock and Haunted Tank. And as I mentioned, they are all standing there, um, you know, in front of a firing squad, but they want their last words, which is how we get the descriptions for the war comics, you know. And as they say, these war comics have been in continuous action for 30 years. So we have G.I. Combat, which features the Haunted Tank, the Mercenaries, and Kana. Kana was a Japanese ninja who defected to the U.S. during World War II in one of those secret organizations called the OSS, or the Office 
of strategic services. What I find interesting about this character that I think I only really knew from like who's who is that he predates Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow by almost a year. And I wonder if his stories are similar to to them in any way. Uh, And then on the next page, we see Sergeant Rock. It's a pretty great Joe Kubert headshot of the character. And again, they're talking, they list the characters and they talk about what the Sergeant Rock title is. It's not as interesting or hmm, it's not as full in its description of the titles. It's, It's like we have war comics here are the characters and here are the titles and that's it but the story is kind of cute even if i did read it wrong the first time i read like one page and then the second page when really you have to read it all the way across at the top and then start back on the left and go all the way across in the middle and then go back to the left again and read all the way across along the bottom Sergeant Rock was up to issue number 380 by this point in summer of 1983, which is the first issue that I would pick up off the rack, and GI Combat was up to 257. So, you know, it's it's detailing what it needs to detail, uh, you know, maybe not one of my favorites, but I did like that they included the creatives, the creative teams uh, within the story. Next up as the blurb reads... The first superhero team-up comic is still the best. World's Finest Comics starring Superman and Batman. So World's Finest Comics was up to issue 295 at this point. Again, my first issue off the rack. And there are some other blurbs here, and they are titled Drama and Adventure, Deadly New Villains, Top Talent, Comicdom's Most Legendary Friendship, And then at the bottom, the new DC, there's no stopping us now, which was DC's motto at that point. Now, if we take a look at each of those blurbs and each of those titles, let's go all the way back. The first superhero team-up comic is still the best. Not the first comic that had a team-up, but the first comic that was specifically written, I suppose, as a team-up book between Superman and Batman, and you could say Robin, The first team-up I originally thought was between Human Torch and Submariner in 1940, Marvel Mystery Comics number 8, and then in number 9, maybe in number 10, World's Finest Comics started in 1941, right? So that was like the ongoing um, fact, flash fact, if you want to say, or narrative fact, or publishing fact. But then, uh, as I dig did a little research and you don't have to go too far the first team up between characters published in different comics from the same publisher was published in 1940 but it wasn't by marvel it was mlj comics pep comics number four which featured a story between shield and also the character of wizard so uh Pep Comics 4 crossed over into Top Notch Comics number 5, and it's in that comic where S.H.I.E.L.D. met Wizard. And then Timely Comics at the time would follow up between a team-up with Submariner and Human Torch, and then eventually we would get a team book with Justice Society of America, but World's Finest Comics was specifically created to be a team-up book, which is different. 
So I don't know. I guess the comic book narrative is that Human Torch and Submariner are the first to team up, but there are several sources that say no. It's between S.H.I.E.L.D. and Wizard, which is kind of cool. So that's something I learned by looking at this spread. Then we go to the title of Drama and Adventure, and they say Earth's first superhero and its foremost crusader for justice. So Superman in World's Finest Comics is Superman of Earth-1. So technically he's not the first superhero in DC continuity. That would be Superman of Earth-2. In publishing continuity, yes, it would be Superman. Uh, so they're, they're describing publisher continuity more than anything. I thought that was a... Again, if I'm using this as promotion to try to learn about the titles... Um, you know, they're trying to speak to the longevity of this title. And then the blurb of Deadly New Villains, they list Null and Void, the Moon Dancers, who featured in the first World Finest comic that I picked up, and coming up, the Pantheon, who we see in Shadow. Now, I loved all of these characters when I was a kid. I don't know if they ever used them again, but I really dug them. Later on, we would get a character known as Master Pirate and Swordfish and Barracuda. And a lot of this is between World's Finest Comics 293 through issue like 307. There's a really long, somewhat connected arc there that is really great. Uh, and then they mentioned top talent, um, creators like Ross Andrew, Mike W. Barr, Tony Dezaniga, Adrian Gonzalez, Frank Giacoa, Ed Hannigan, Klaus Jansen, Gil Kane, David Anthony Kraft, Frank Miller, Doug Monk, Walt Simonson, Marv Wolfman, and editor Roger Sliffer. And this whole artwork is drawn by Jerome Moore with, I guess, an inker named Bertram, but I tried to look up who that was and couldn't find anything. And then the blurb of Comicdom's Most Legendary Friendship. And within that, that blurb, I love this line, that this friendship is ever-growing, ever-changing, especially now when it, is, when it is rocked by the explosive developments that led Batman to form The Outsiders. So this lengthy storyline, if you want to call it that, Superman and Batman quite often are at odds with each other and, and you know, negative towards each other and salty towards each other. And I love that this whole moment of Justice League history where Batman decides to quit because they wouldn't help him out with, it, with his friend Lucius Fox in another nation, so he decides to form the Outsiders. I love that this echoed not only in Justice League of America, not only in Outsiders, but in World's Finest Comics in New Teen Titans, and probably other titles at the time. And, you know, many people like to say that DC Comics in the 80s, that they weren't connected, but here we are, 1983, and there was this, you know, strange relationship that was playing out within multiple titles. It really was, I did enjoy that storyline quite a lot. Now, I don't know if that particular spread would be juicy to some people, but I enjoyed it for what I was able to pull out of it. Next up, we get probably one of the best ones right along the Wolfman Perra's New Teen Titans one. This is Legion of Superheroes by Paul Levitz, Keith Giffen, and Larry Malstead. Legion of Superheroes was up to issue 303 at this point. My first issue was 304. 
And the little blurb here is, what kind of sentient being devours every issue of the Legion? And then there's a blurb that says, insufficient data, but 50,000 more of them have turned onto the series during the last year. Wow, 50,000? Are they really saying like 50,000 new readers? That's amazing. I mean, you know, I've read a lot of um, articles and interviews about that time, and they did say that New Teen Titans and Legion were two DC titles that ran sort of neck and neck. So that's, that's an amazing increase of readership. And then what's so great about this whole spread, first off, the main image doesn't even feature the main Legion team. We have Nightwind, we have Matter Eater Lad, we have Crystal Kid, who I always liked, the little guy with the one eyeball, and the other character that likes to eat tech a lot. And Matter Eater Lad is literally chomping down on a Legion comic. So, okay, not the team, right? Now, the panels that they show afterwards does feature a lot of the Legion crew. And what's so great is they answer their question, right? Who, um, who, what kind of sentient being devours every issue of the Legion? Uh, more and more of them have turned onto the series during the last year, possibly four. And then what they do is each panel is kind of like a genre, right? Or kind of like a, um, yeah, like a story genre or like, you know, emotion or why you read, you read this book because of adventure and secrets and combat, mystery in space, young love, police, action, detective, funny stuff, and weird worlds. And if those all sound familiar, yes, they are titles within the DC universe for many decades, and some of them are decades old. Now, the one uh, for police, that's obviously police comics, which was by quality, but at this point they did, quality was under DC. So not, not only do they list each panel and each genre and whatever, they also use the word in the font of the title. So adventure looks like adventure comics and secrets looks like House of Secrets and young love looks like young love. So it's really great. And then the artwork in the panels, initially I thought, oh, they just reproduced these from issues number 304, 307, some other places, but they are not. They're, it's new artwork similar to some of the panels within those issues. And I was kind of blown away with that, that I never really noticed that before. I just assumed that they were. And then I did some side-by-side -side comparisons for instance, Timberwolf fighting that little machine thing is similar to a scene in 304, but it is not exact. Or Power Boy versus that one um, creature from 304. Again, similar to a panel, but not quite. I think that's kind of great. There's even a panel that features, I assume, Prophet and Omen, but again, not exactly the same panel. That's kind of crazy, and I don't know why I never noticed that before. And then the last panel is, and according to our readers, we haven't gone plop yet. Again, another DC title, and it's Bouncing Boy pulling open, pulling open his costume, and you see the DC bullet that's sort of shaping his body. This is so good. It's so fun. It's showcasing that early Giffen early 80s Giffen artwork that made this book stand out. Definitely one of my favorites in the sampler. 
and it would also be used I know it was used in one of the small digest reprints as well so fantastic spread next up we have the flash by Carrie Bates and Carmine Infantino flash was up to issue 325 at this point featuring a story with the death of reverse flash and Barry Allen about ready to marry for a second time all the blurbs are uh, start off with one split second and we have we see a scene where he becomes the flash and then one split second where reverse flash kills iris west barry's first wife and then one split second where reverse flash is almost ready to kill barry's second bride-to-be fiona webb and then it ends with a shot of flash running towards us and then his mug shot which is directly from Flash 326. All the rest of it, I'm fairly certain, is new artwork. So this is the storyline where Flash does kill Reverse Flash, and then there's a lengthy trial, leading all the way up to issue 350, which would be the end of that series. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's not a bad uh, spread. You know, it kind of gives you exactly what the status quo is of Flash at this point. Now, I guess, you know, are you a fan of Carmine Infantino's artwork or not at this point? I guess that could be a question. Um, but I do like the mugshot, and I like the shot of him running towards us. Now, what I really like, and again, I'm only sort of discovering this again so many years later, you know, my brain has changed as I've talked about comics all these many years, and certainly the notion of crisis is always foremost in my brain. So the last blurb says... How many more times can lightning strike across the path of one extraordinary man? What will be the next crisis destined to irrevocably change the life of the Flash? Now, are they using that word just because? Or is this really hinting at the crisis to come, right? Now, you can't really tell by the font in the lettering or or you can't tell by the lettering because it is all um capitalized so it's not like it's capital c r-i-s-i-s -I -S. it's all capitalized there's just something about that word when you think about it in a historical context i'm just like is carrie bates kind of you know playing the long game here or giving us a little hint i love it i love it and that little crisis mention um, kind of boosted this ad for me. So I could see someone getting excited by this, but again, you know, it depends on your love of the character, your love of the artwork. Um, you know, it's still early within the trial, so it's not like you know that it's going to go on for a long time, but love that little crisis mention. All right, the next spread starts with, and now a word about Arik, Son of Thunder. Beginning in issue 26, newcomer Ron Randall joins Roy Thomas and Alfredo Alcala on inks for a new era of the last Quantaka Brave. And I looked it up, Quantaka, I, I'm fairly certain, is a fictional tribe name. So it's Arak battling some kind of fire demon while defending a damsel. There is a crowd that's looking on and cheering. There's really not much to this, you know? There's, you know, it's, that's kind of it. And I guess you just have to be into, you know, this sort of 
what it's not really fantasy it's not really sword and sorcery i don't know what genre you would actually call it i would not collect Arik for a, a, almost half a year after this promotion now I, di I didn't but i don't know if i ever mentioned i didn't pick up the dc sampler as it was first released i picked it up years later but um i don't know if this spread would have I, you know, I don't know if I would look at it and go, ooh, I want to read this. You know, there's not much to it. If you compare it to the Arion, Arion Lord of Atlantis one from last time, the Arion one was much fuller with information. Now, what does make this two-page spread great is that it has a sidebar. And that sidebar, sidebar is for Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew. And it says, also on sale, the final issue of our current Captain Carrot series featuring the changeling of the new Teen Titans versus the Flash's apish adversary, Gorilla Grodd. The sidebar, strangely, is black and white, maybe to offset the color of Arik. This is, it's a recreation of, well, not a recreation, it's a, it's a reproduction of the cover to issue number 20, which would be the final issue of that series, and it would be out a few months after this. So it's kind of nice that DC's Funny Animal book did get a little bit of a nod, even if it is just a sidebar. Two more here. We have Supergirl, which was up to issue 11 at this point, and it was entitled The Daring New Adventures of Supergirl. This spread, they just straight up printed pages two and three from the upcoming issue number 13 at the time. Issue 13 is where Supergirl received a new costume, her, the costume that she would wear for most of the 80s. It's the costume that she died in during the crisis without the headband just yet. Um, incidentally, it's also the costume that Dan Mora is riffing on during the current uh, Batman Superman World's Finest title. This is by Paul Kupperberg, Carmine Infantino, again, Bob Oxner, Ben Oda, Tom Ziuko. And I wonder if because Infantino was on two books, is that why they decided to just put this here as, you know, from the actual comic? Because they're like, well, we can't ask him to draw two things. But what we could do is put in those two pages from issue 13. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe the sampler came first, you know? I don't know. Um, because it's very exposition heavy. It's Supergirl talking to Superman about all of her adventures up to this point while they're in the Fortress of Solitude. So I don't know which one came first. I'm assuming the comic came first. And they're just like, hey, that would actually work for the sampler for this title. So there you go. And lastly, we have The Fury of Firestorm, The Nuclear Man, which is basically a double-page pinup. We have Firestorm, we have supporting cast members, we have villains, and we have the creators, Jerry Conway and Pat Broderick, although they are not named. Well, Broderick's name is signed, but we don't have Jerry Conway's name. Firestorm is up to issue 16 at this time. We see Firehawk, we see uh, Firestorm versus Tokomak, the human reactor, and then we see Martin, St Martin Stein, Doreen Day, Cliff Carmichael, Jefferson Jackson. Such a great series. I really, I really need to read this again. 100 issues, plus the first volume, plus some annuals. Um, yeah, just so good. I'm assuming this might hook you with the art. I was a fan of Broderick at the time. Um, 
One strange thing to note is on the desk of Pat Broderick is a brick, and it says Ignatz Award. But the Ignatz Awards didn't start until the 90s, so, you know, I know with Crazy Cat, Ignatz used to throw a brick, but did he call it the Ignatz Award in it? Like, why why is there an Ignatz Award label on this brick? Or maybe the awards were around in the early 80s and then they stopped and came back? I don't know. And I tried looking it up and I couldn't find it. And I don't know enough about Crazy Cat to know if the character of Ignatz was like, this is my award, it's a brick, I'm going to throw it at you. You know, and is that the whole reason why the awards came about in the first place? I don't know. So maybe somebody knows. Not a bad pinup, but it is ultimately a pinup, and it's not like you get much description about what's going on, but uh, maybe Firestorm was popular enough at the time that it didn't need it. I don't know. And then uh, the whole sampler ends with uh, some critical responses from various trade magazines at the time, and they call it critical comments the new DC, there's no stopping us now. And the critical acclaim comes from all over. Here's just a small sampling of gratifying comments comments from the fan press. And again, if you're trying to give this to new readers or or entice older readers to try new books, I guess, I guess this is another way to do that. So they have Heidi McDonald from the Comics Journal talking about New Teen Titans. Sam Kujava in the Comic Reader talking about Amethyst Princess of Gemworld. I like what he has to say about Ernie Cologne. He says, The art of Ernie Cologne owes nothing to Adams, Kirby, Eisner, Kane, or any other popular god, and it's all the more fresh and compelling for that. It's an interesting little description. Sam Kujava also talks about Sergeant Rock. Uh, and then we have Kevin McConnell in Amazing Heroes talking about Omega Men, and David Tranzu in Amazing Heroes talking about... Uh, the artwork of Don Newton and just how damn good it was. And I totally agree with that. So there you go. That is the DC Sampler. Those are the titles they decided to spotlight. And there were titles that they did not spotlight. And Giordano talked about that in the column. He said maybe the creative team wasn't available. Maybe there was something, some kind of new status quo that was, that was coming up that they weren't ready for. So there's no Blackhawk. Although we see the character in the DC Comics present spread. There's no Camelot 3000, which was up to issue 8 at this point. So that's almost over. No House of Mystery. No Jonah Hex. No Justice League of America, right? Which again, maybe at this point, it hadn't quite settled on uh, Jerry Conway with Chuck Patton just yet, you know? Um, no Night Force, although that had already ended by this point or... I think it ends the same month. No Warlord. No Sword of the Atom, which had just begun. No Ronin. No Swamp Thing. But again, that could be because Alan Moore ha was just about ready to take over. No Green Lantern. Probably the same thing. The new team of Len Wein and Dave Gibbons was just about ready to take over. So maybe they thought, well, we can't do it just yet. So... There you go, my breakdown of DC Sampler number one. Whenever I get back to the Meanwhile segment, I will return to Dick's column, picking up with the column in cover date, uh, DC Comics cover dated October 1983. See you then. Name's Lobo. Thank you! 
<laughs> so you have heard of me, yeah? So then you'll know what my name means. Yes? No? It means he who devours his enemy's entry house and enjoys it. For this Tuesday segment, I am going to celebrate the birthday of Mr. Keith Giffen, whose birthday is actually on Wednesday, November 30th, um, but I'm going to cover it here on the Tuesday segment because Wednesday is, you know, usually for New Comics Wednesday. So yes, Keith Giffen was born November 30th, 1952, which marks him at, at 70 years old this year. And he was born in Queens, New York. Keith Giffen is easily one of my top 10 favorite creators, especially over the many, many, many years. He has made me laugh. He has made me think. He has made me cry. He has made me wonder. You name it. He is just uh, an underrated uh, creator and um, just someone that I felt when I found out that his birthday uh, was, you know, November 30th and he was turning 70. I was like, okay, I have to do something to mark this occasion for all of the fun and all of the amazing comics that he has given me since, you know, the mid eighties, probably, or no, I guess the early eighties, right? Starting with Legion of Superheroes. So, um, I was trying to rack my brain, you know, what do I do? So he's 70. I can't, I don't want to do like 70 things of Keith Giffen and it's not like he's worked for seven decades. So I decided to do seven characters that Keith Giffen has created or co-created that have, um, you know, maybe have meant something to me or that I just feel like are the seven that most resonate with me or that, um, uh, you know, have a, have a place within the larger comics world. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. Seven characters by Mr. Keith Given, starting with, if you listened to the intro, Lobo, co-created with Roger Sliffer, had his first appearance in Omega Man number three in 1983. I was not an Omega Man reader off the shelf, but I did as a kid. Um, the first comic store I ever went to, which was called Hildebrand's, they were having an Omega Men sale, and I just randomly picked up probably the first year's worth or close to all of those 12 issues, and one of those issues was issue number three, featuring Lobo, a very different Lobo than maybe you know, and then he would have adventures in Omega Men, in Justice League International, in the L-E-G-I-O-N title, eventually going up against Superman a bunch of times, some appearances in the Demon title, and then once the Lobo miniseries hits in 1990 with Giffen and Alan Grant and Simon Beasley, that was it, right? Like, the character would never be the same again. So I played that intro. That is from the second season of Krypton, the series that was on Sci-Fi, portrayed by Emmett J. Scanlon and... You know, I really liked that portrayal of Lobo. Like, maybe he isn't as bulky as some characters might think, 
but um, I quite enjoyed that performance a lot. You know, the first live-action Lobo, officially, the first official live-action Lobo. There was supposed to be a spin-off series with the character, but it never worked out. So, you know, Lobo's just one of those characters that has lived on these many decades, and, of course, in this kind of list, I had to give him a nod. Next up is one of my personal favorites. It is Jack of Hearts, co-created with Bill Mantlo, who had his first appearance in Deadly Hands of Kung Fu 22 in early 1976. It was within the White Tiger story, of all things, which, um, you know, spun out from Sons of the Tiger and then White Tiger. George Perez was on art. And then, you know, there's only like two or three appearances of White Tiger, and suddenly Keith Giffen is handed the book. Um, because I think Perez left to do The Avengers, I think. Um, it's in black and white, right? Magazine format. And in this White Tiger story, we get a battle near the end with his new character named Jack of Hearts. And there he is in all of his crazy costume, which is, I think, the thing that I really love about him the most. Now, I first came across Jack of Hearts either in, yeah, it probably was uh, a Marvel team-up issue with Spider-Man, and then that four-issue miniseries in the 80s, which I really, really, really liked. Now, many people continue to this day to think that uh, Jack of Hearts was co-created by George Perez, probably because he was featured in White Tiger, maybe because... Um, the costume is, it feels very, you know, Perezian, you know, but it's not. It is by, the visual is by Keith Giffen, and that's confirmed by Bill Mantlo, it's confirmed by Perez himself, and it's confirmed by Kurt Busiek and other people as well. I, I really do. I, this is just one of those characters you can't explain. He's kooky. He has an odd place within the DC universe. He almost, I mean, the Marvel universe, what I was going to say was he almost feels like he should be in the DC universe, but I love him. All right, next up, Rocket Raccoon, also with Bill Mantlo, first appeared in Marvel Pre Preview number seven, again in 1976. Uh, both this and the Deadly Hands of Kung Fu issue these issues were within Giffen's first year of doing comics professionally. And Rocket Raccoon would feature in a story that was part of the ongoing Sword in the Star feature. And this chapter was entitled Witch World. And then this would be the last chapter. They sort of, I don't know, ended this story abruptly within Marvel Preview. I don't know the, the story behind it. But in this story, we would see Rocket Raccoon for the first time as drawn and designed by Keith Giffen, although he was called Rocky Raccoon at the time. And then he would show up in Incredible Hulk, and then he too would also have his own four-issue miniseries with art by Mike Mignola in the 80s. He only had a handful of appearances after that before finally becoming something within the 2000s when he was wrapped up with the Guardians of the Galaxy and Annihilation, and of course, later, uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Let's go back to DC and talk about Maxwell Lord, created by Giffen with J.M. DeMatteis and Kevin Maguire for the Justice League series that premiered in 1987. This was a character that, you know, DC has had many non-powered 
um, supporting characters within their stable for many, many years. You know, Perry White, Lois Lane, Commissioner Gordon, um, you know, just characters that help to flesh out a team. And here's a character who is kind of like ambiguous. You don't know what side he's on, right? Like he wants to be like the front person for the Justice League for a new era post-crisis and yet, you know, brings about a situation at the UN that results in the death of, of a terrorist. So he's, you know, he's not actually a good guy when you go back and read those early issues. But he was a good point person and he was an enigmatic character and he was someone that you could write stories about in those comics and he just was... He kind of worked. He kind of worked for the 80s, which is probably why they used him in Wonder Woman 84. He just kind of worked for that title. And he has had, you know, many decades of stories with DC and then eventually what they did with Countdown and Infinite Crisis, bringing him back in Blackest Night. And he's used to this day uh, a character that goes back all the way to 1987 as co-created by Keith Giffen and, um, you know, well worth his place within the DC universe. Over at Valiant Comics, Keith Giffen created a team called Punks, P-U-N-X. Four issues starting in 19, or all in 1995. There were three issues and then a manga special. This was a total spoof of 90s comics, a total commentary on Valiant, which had just been purchased by Acclaim at that point. And when you think of other titles that Giffen has done in the 90s, like Heckler, Book of Fate, Vexed. This fits right in line with those, both in terms of the artwork and with the tone that Giffen is using to do parody and to do commentary. And you have characters like Aslan, Cram, Frontline, Gutter Rat, and Hellion. It's a, it's a book many people don't know about because I'm sure it wasn't printed a lot. It only lasted, like I said, four issues. I loved it, though. One of those Valiant books that I really liked. Um, and I would love to read it again. So if you've never read Punks, this is not one of those... <laughs> this isn't one of Keith Giffen's creations that has you know lasted over many years, but it's one of those that I really, really, really like. And then we have to go to Legion, L-E-G-I-O-N, created by Keith Giffen, Bill Mantlo again, and Todd McFarlane, of all people. The team was created for the Invasion event of 1989, then eventually would spin off into its own series. Characters like Vril Dox, Garen Beck, Larissa Mallor, Strata, Strata Stealth, um, and then eventually we would get Lobo. Phase, Largan, Lady Quark, Captain Comic, Telepath, Marijan Beck, and so, so many more. This entire team, this entire book, the way it was executed, it has Keith Giffen's name all over it, and his style, and his talent, and his, you know, he very much speaks through certain characters, and you can just, you can feel his energy, especially working with um, other creators. And this book is absolutely that. So one of those creations also has stood the test of time, probably has also caused some headaches with continuity, but, um, Giffen in the eighties was 
was kind of like their version of of a continuity cop or someone who could go in and look at a property and kind of give it a new spin. Like he did that with Dr. Fate. He did it with Aquaman. He did it with Amethyst. He does it with Legion. He has interesting ideas and he has ways to spark new paths for maybe some stale um, uh, characters, right? And this was one of those things that I guess they were hoping could be used as a basis to smooth out what was going on with the Legion of Superheroes post-crisis. Maybe it worked at the time, maybe it didn't. All I know is it made for some damn good reading in the 80s and 90s. And then finally, if you know me, you know that my number one pick is going to be Ambush Bug, which was created in 1982 for DC Comics Presents issue number 52, featuring the Doom Patrol. Giffen calls Ambush Bug, or describes him as Bugs Money, as a supervillain. And then he would make a few more appearances before getting his own four-issue miniseries, and then another miniseries, and then some specials, and some appearances here and there. In many ways, he's like DC's Alfred E. Newman. Um, He is, to me, a, a part of the DC universe that when you get this character, and when it's written well by Giffen, you know he's being brought out because Giffen has something he wants to say. He has something he wants to say about comics. He has something he wants to say about developing art styles or characters or poking fun at continuity, poking fun of characters, poking fun of creators. I mean, he's such, I don't know why, but he is just a character that I love. Um, And, you know, Marvel uh, certainly tried to replicate that. Um, with someone like Deadpool, but for me, Ambush Bug is, is, I just love him because he's used, used sparingly and he has been used somewhat in the past. Well, he was just in Suicide Squad, like within the past year or whatever. I haven't read those issues yet, but I cre- uh, collected them. Um, when he's used, sometimes I like him when he's used by other creators. Sometimes I don't. Um, it's hard to capture that voice because it is so Keith Giffen, but I love it. So there was an interview Keith Giffen uh, did where he talked about both Lobo and um, Ambush Bug. And he says, I have no idea why Lobo took off. I came up with him as an indictment of the Punisher Wolverine hero prototype. And somehow he caught on as the high violence poster boy. Go figure. And then he later stated that both Lobo and Ambush Bug were derived from Lunatic a character he created in high school and that would feature in Marvel's Defenders. And when you look at that original design for Lunatic, you can kind of see why he drew Lobo the way he did in Omega Men number three. And he said Lobo had Lunatic's mercilessness and uh, Ambush Bug had his goofiness. So... Um, yeah, Ambush Bug, I've been meaning to do a huge deep dive on the character because I do, I, I just got hit that four-issue miniseries in the 80s is just so funny. I hope it stands up to this day, but there you go. Seven characters by Keith Giffen that I love or that I wanted to make note of. I could do Giffen stories. I could do Giffen art. I could, I could do Giffen covers He's just one of those creators that um, he has his own special place within my collection. All of Keith Giffen's comics, kind of like the miniseries 
or some one-offs, not necessarily like the Legion. Anything he does lengthy, I don't put it within G for Giffen, but anything that's kind of short, I do. Because I just, I just love the character. So, happy birthday, Keith Giffen. Now, this week, we are also going to do another birthday segment on Thursday. For the same day of November 30th, 1952, another gentleman turning 70 years old. And I will talk about that when we get to Thursday's segment. We'll make the bestest team ever, Joker and Batman. Fine, Batman and Joker take top billing, but why is it always me compromising for the sake of the act? Joker, if we're going to work together, I need your word you won't hurt anyone. Hmm, not really me. But what the heck, I'm in, put it there! Wednesday Night Fever. Wednesday Night Fever, where I take a look at some current comic and give a short review, and then a whole bunch of recommendations. We're going to start off with a review of Batman Joker Deadly Duo 1 of 7. This is by Mark Silvestri, colors by Arif Prianto, letters by Troy Pateri, and this is coming out of DC's Black Label. This is a project that apparently, if you read some interviews or listen to Mark Silvestri talk about the book, that he has been working on for seven years, or it has been seven years, from the time that he was pitched to do a book, uh, and it became, you know, this, Batman and Joker, and now finally seeing print. I decided to read this because I recently signed up for the Ultra tier at the uh, DC Universe Infinite website. I have, I've already been a, uh, a member of that site since the beginning, and, you know, I kind of was like, you know, do I join the Ultra tier? They had the special pricing, and I was like, okay, uh, yeah, I should probably join. I'll, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in the Friday segment for um, Feedback Friday. So anyway, so I joined the Ultra tier, and I was like, well, you know, got to try to get my money's worth, I guess. And I was looking for something that I could read without much preamble, and I came across this first issue, and I thought, yeah, okay, I'll read this. Um, for all of its pomp and circumstance and, and, you know, to have Mark Silvestri, uh, drawing in a, drawing for a DC project, that's out of continuity, but still, obviously it's Batman, so it's, you know, it's going to get some eyes on it. I walked away and thought that was kind of standard and in many ways, uh, not not to the level that I was expecting. Look, I, I didn't think the story was going to be amazing. I thought I would be a little more engaged with the artwork, you know, because, I mean, Mark Silvestri is not on any of my top lists when it comes to artists, but, you know, I liked Cyberforce, and I liked seeing his artwork on things. Um, you know, it has an energy... Uh, that can be exciting, and I just felt this wasn't exciting. It was strangely reserved in many ways. I mean, it is definitely his style, what his style has become, anyway, um, all these many decades later, but I don't know. I, I guess the the notion of these artists, you know, that, that Image 7 and everybody that they spawned, 
uh, that notion that they came in with such amazing energy and such creative juices and whether you like their art style or not, it kind of hit. I guess that's, you know, they're kind of just one of the crowd now. And I just thought this story was way by the books. It was almost like there was a checklist, right? Like Batman distrusting the cops, the cops distrust, distrusting Batman. Let's get a Catwoman appearance in there. Uh, it's with Joke. There's Joker. There's Harley Quinn. Uh, we got to show the Batcave. Okay, we got that. And all of it just came across as, I don't know. I was just like reading it and not really finding much emotionality in it. Um, even on a surface read, I felt like there's been so many Batman stories over the years that you really have to have an engaging hook. And Batman teaming up with Joker is not a hook. It's been done before. I mean, the clip I played was from the Brave and the Bold cartoon. And, you know, it's not, it's, it's been done before. It's been done many, many, many times. The story is fairly standard. It opens with Harley being kidnapped. You don't know by who. Then it cuts to Batman investigating uh, a crime scene where somebody has been murdered and mutilated. He then chases after who might be the killer, and it winds up being some kind of like Joker demonite thing who is carrying around, um, uh, you know, a head. And there's a confrontation. And then, you know, somewhere along the way, Joker reaches out to Batman and says, look, someone is, you know, making me look bad. So let's team up, not as a dynamic duo, but a deadly duo. There's the title. And that's where the issue ends. I mean, it's 22 pages of art. It's listed as a 32-page book for $4.99, 22 pages of art. There are some title pages that have no art. And then there are some sketches in the back. Um, not sketches. It's like original artwork that has been inked without the coloring. So you get to see, you know, Silvestri's raw artwork, which is kind of nice. I, I do like that. But it's just very by the books. It is, it's got everything you, you expect for, from a Batman story. I mean, there's a scene in the Batcave where Alfred is healing him and giving him some snarky, uh, remarks and reminding him of his business duties. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why, what the draw is outside of just Mark Silvestri doing a Batman book. But again, is it the, would this have been better 15 years ago, 20 years ago? I mean, here we are in 2022. Does the name Mark Silvestri have that kind of draw again? I mean, what's odd is that there's a Batman uh, Spawn crossover happening, and that seems to be getting a lot of engagement, you know, because it's Todd McFarlane and Spawn and Batman. But this uh, Mark Silvestri thing, I don't know, felt felt a little flat. So... Um, and I read it digitally on the app. I wonder if reading it uh, print-wise, maybe the artwork might have resonated a little different. I don't know. So wait for the collection if you get a chance, if you can read it for free somewhere, or you you know, if you're one of those that, you know, flip through it in the in the comic store, maybe you might find something in it that you like. But my recommendation for this is it's seven issues. Just wait for the collection. If you really want to read it, or if you're on the app, you know, read the app, read it on the app. So, all right, here are your recommendations 
for the week of November 30th, starting off with Marvel, Avengers Assemble Alpha, $5.99, which is leading into Avengers 63. Apparently, this might be, you know, Jason Aaron's final swan song on the book. I'm not sure, um, but it's all the members of uh, the various Avengers teams and across the multiverse coming together in a big battle. From Invader Comics, we have Recall, the graphic novel, $14.99 by Kevin Miller and Danigel Zezig and Michael Nelson. A couple finds themselves pursued by mysterious lights in the sky along a remote highway. Is their pursuit a dream or something more sinister? Inspired by the Betty and Barney Hill abduction, the first widely publicized alien abduction in the United States, Recall is a graphic novel about race, race, romance, and fear. From Z2 Comics, we have Enter the Blue for $19.99 by David Chisholm. When Jesse Choi's mentor, Jimmy Hightower, collapses at a gig, she finds herself reluctantly pulled back into the jazz scene she abandoned years earlier. In investigating the music and mystery behind Jimmy's comatose state, every thread leads to the same question. Is Jimmy somehow trapped in this enigma known as the blue? In her search to save her teacher, Jessie rubs shoulders with legends, uncovers the secret history of Blue Note Records, and faces her own deepest fears. I guess I picked this because it's been getting a couple good reviews here and there. It's got some good word of mouth. And graphic novels that feature music is always interesting, so there you go. Two from DC Comics, Blue Beetle Graduation Day, one of six, written by Josh, uh, Josh Truillo and art by Adrian Gutierrez, $3.99, and Justice Society of America, number one, Jeff Johns and Mikhail Hanin, for $3.99. Both of these getting attention here and there, obviously, Justice Society because of Black Adam and the, and the Golden Age one-shot, Blue Beetle because of the movie eventually coming out. Who knows? Maybe. Possibly. I guess. (laughs) Um, So I just wanted to make sure people knew that these books were now out. Uh, I did order a print copy of Justice Society, but Blue Beetle Graduation Day I'm going to read on the DC app. All right, there you go. Recommendations for the week of November 30th. Then I went to see Yettle. You know, here I am, big man to Potemkin fan. So I went to see Yettle, and, you know, I love Barbara Streisand. you got to say my name right, or my aunt is going to call up. Isn't it? Mandy Potemkin. No. Oh. What is it? Potemkin, people think it's Potemkin because of the Cadillac people. Yeah. It, it, it's, uh, and it's not, so I cannot get you a deal on account. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's Potemkin. Oh, Potemkin. Potemkin, right. Potemkin. Let's all say it together. <laughs> Potemkin. Very good. <laughs> You've made my Aunt Ida a happy lady. <laughs> Aunt Ida, I'm sorry. A funny clip with Mandy Patinkin getting <laughs> um, Regis to say his name correctly in a way that, you know, takes the shame off Regis for not knowing how to say his name. Um, so that's a clip, uh, uh, you know, from a couple decades back. So I talked about how there is another birthday for November 30th and the same year, November 30th, 1952. Mandy Patinkin is celebrating 70 years, just like Keith Giffen. And he was born in Chicago, Illinois. And Mandy Patinkin is definitely uh, the person I most emulated as I was growing up uh, and learning about learning about musical theater. I don't know if it was the roles that he originated 
um, or maybe the the song, the the voice style that he had, because um, you know he sings. I don't you know, and he's a very good singer, but he is an amazing storyteller, and ultimately that's really what brought me to this person um, as a kid, as I, as I was getting to know musical theater and hearing him in Evita and Sunday in the Park with George and Secret Garden and uh, the Follies concert. And um, when he started to put out his own CDs and his appearances on David Letterman, I mean, he was, here was a person that um, had such a wealth of musical theater history behind him in some major roles and he was a major driving force and he's one of those you know he's one of those creatives that likes to think about things and I just loved everything and then of course obviously most people know him from TV Princess Bride um Alien Nation um Yentl, Dick Tracy, his big TV break on Chicago Hope and then all the way up to his character on Homeland he is just someone that when I watch perform, I am, I'm just in it. I'm just really in it. So I saw him live three times, two times at, in Philadelphia at the Merriam Theater and once in New York in a, in a small, smaller venue. And I have um, two stories. So uh, one of the, one of the concerts in Philly, and I don't know if this was scripted or was truly an accident or, or, you know, it really happened for real, but he starts to sing, he does his opening concert and he starts to sing, he does a couple songs and then he stops and he talks to the audience and somebody from way, way up in the highest balcony, they say, we can hear you. And he questioned, you know, was there something with the sound system or what? But apparently they couldn't really hear him all the way up there. So he yells back at the sound guy. He jokingly says that he's fired, tells him to fix it. I guess they fix it. And then he goes and walks off. He takes two big plants that he had carried out, you know, for decoration for, for the front of the stage. He carries them back out, off into the wings, and then comes back again, starts the show all over again, does a whole, you know, does new songs. And I don't know. Did he just put an extra 15, 20 minutes on his show because of that? I don't know, but it was kind of a cool moment. And then the other um, moment, I don't know if it was the same night, but he sang a song called Car Coffee in a Cardboard Cup. And he said, when I ring this little bell, you it, you can come up on stage with me. And I think it was his birth around his birthday at that time. He said, come on up, give me a birthday present and, you know, join the stage with me. And I knew about this moment because um, my ex-girlfriend uh, had seen him perform at a college and he did the same thing. And I wasn't with her at this performance. So maybe it was the second time I saw him because I was with another girl at the time. <laughs> and I was in the first balcony. And when he said, everybody come up on stage, everybody kind of laughed. They were like, haha, no, you know, of course that wasn't going to happen. I knew he was really telling the truth. So he rang that bell. I ran from the first balcony, ran down all the way down to the first floor, up on the straight stage. I was familiar with the theater because my college used to perform there. And I was, I jumped up on stage. I think I brought him some chapstick for his birthday. I grabbed his leg. We were sing, all singing the end of the song. I think only like maybe 15 people actually went up. 
And then when I went back to my seat, people around me, they were like, oh my God, we saw you. You know, we couldn't believe you actually did it. I was like, I told you beforehand, I warned everybody in my row. I was like, I'm going. So I'm going to be rushing by you. It was great. It was great. It was so much fun. I was such a nerd about it. And then, like I said, I saw him in New York as well. It was a much more intimate theater and um, it was just a beautiful concert. So, yeah. So it's Mandy Patinkin's birthday as well this week on Wednesday. And I just wanted to talk to him a little bit. And for him, instead of going through verbally, you know, the shows and things I like about him, like I did with Keith Giffen, I'm just going to play a bunch of clips from various roles that he has done or from various appearances um, that I enjoy. So here you go. Enjoy and happy birthday to Mandy Patinkin. She had her moments. She had some style. The best show in town was the crowd. Outside the Casa Rosada crying Ava Perot. But that's all gone now. As soon as the smoke from the funeral clears, we're all gonna see how she did nothing for years. Strike ya, slato or nah? You don't want to know. No, no, come. Your mother mates out of season. You know? Why on the earth? Tell me why on the earth should I stay now that you are gone? Now that you are gone. Lily. Yes, Hello! My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die! No! Offer me money. Power to promise me that. All that I have and more. Please, offer me everything I ask for. Anything you want. I want my father back, you son of a bitch. Live in your barbarous jungles, screaming for ways to get clear. When all the screaming has died away, come and visit my hideaway. Feedback Friday. Feedback Friday. This is coming to us from Matt Williams. Uh, this was an email sent middle of November. And Matt is going to talk about the DC Universe Infinite Ultra level. And uh, here he goes. He says, regarding the Ultra app, I am still considering whether to upgrade or not. Like you, I think I would be saving money. There are a couple of series like Dark Crisis that I'm buying in print because I wanted to stay current, but I would probably have waited for the issues on the app if the wait were shorter than six months. That would have been a savings of at least $35 right there, which is almost the difference between what I'm currently paying for the app and what I would pay for Ultra. 
Right now, I still have the pre-launch introductory rate of $60 per year. That's the same rate that I had as well. As I mentioned back in the Wednesday segment, I did get the, I decided to finally do the ultra tier for many of those same reasons. I mean, if you don't buy, uh, if I don't order certain books, even with my discounts from DCBS, it pays for the pricing of $99. Instead of paying $60 plus tax, I pay $99 plus tax. And, you know, that $30, as you said, I'm going to make up because there's going to be, especially with the dawn of DC coming out, I'm going to be reading a lot and I'm going to get my money's worth um, out of this tier. The only thing that they did do was uh, my renewal happened happens in December, but because I upgraded in November, they bumped me right away. So they gave me back the difference for the month of December and just took that out of the pricing. Well, actually, no, they refunded me. It was like, you know, five bucks or something like that. And then charged me for the ultra tier. So um, I just assumed they were going to wait until my renewal. Um, but yeah, you know, his logic, Matt's logic is my logic. I was like, yep, that just makes sense. Um, Matt continues, it's true that Marvel shortened the gap between the release of new issues to comic stores and their availability on the Marvel Unlimited app from six months to three months. But that decision was forced upon them by the three months during which they did not publish comics in the spring of 2020. As a longtime subscriber, I was curious what they would choose to do when the new comics releases on the app caught up to the pandemic-induced suspension of publication. Had they not chosen to go ahead and shorten the gap, then the app would have gone three months without new issues being available on the service. Of course, they marketed it it like it was a new benefit for subscribers, but I think they really didn't have a choice. Yeah, I mean, well, they could have released some comics during the pandemic like DC did, but they, they chose not to. Um, if DC were to in- introduce a middle-tier plan with a three-month gap between publication and app availability with a price between the six-month cost and the one-month cost, then I would upgrade to that immediately. Matt continues, The Hoopla app for libraries is also playing a part in my decision-making because I could just wait for DC to print a collected edition, which becomes available on Hoopla on the same day that the print edition is available in stores. I don't have to pay anything for that service. And then he asks me if my local library offers Hoopla. And I did a quick search, and um, according to their website, there is a Hoopla link, so I have to assume that they... uh, uh, have hoopla as well so um but you know i don't need that for the dc app for the dc content but maybe for other content it would be nice to check that out matt continues as you suggested people do i've shifted most of my p- purchases to titles from other publishers such as boom dark horse image and vault that i want to support with my comics budget however boom puts most of their new single issues on hoopla the same day that they are in stores, if not one day before, so it's always tempting to go that route. Fortunately, as much of my reading has shifted to digital, i found that I get a thrill from opening Marvel Unlimited on Monday morning and DC on Tuesday morning to see what new issues have been added to each service. So Sweet Weekly Christmas now comes multiple times each week. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for that feedback and for your own experience with the app, with all those apps. And with your mentioning of Hoopla and stuff like that. So, yeah, it really just comes down to, do I need print? Do I need to read these in print? Am I saving money? Yes. 
And, you know, with it only being a month difference, by the time I get my monthly shipment from DCBS, most of these titles are going to wind up on the app. So why not just get, why not just cut down on print, get some other things, get some collections, buy from other uh, publishers. So that's really what I'm doing. I think, um, I will still get print for some things. I mean, I'm always going to get the print of Nightwing, anything Titans related, certain big events. I mean, right now my pool list is like Black Adam because I always want to support Christopher Priest, Dark Knights of Steel. I think I was going to be more engaged with that than I turned out to be, but it's almost over. So of course I'm going to continue. Human Target, Danger Street, anytime Tom King puts out something, I'm probably going to get it. There have been some things I haven't gotten in print, but most stuff I will. Um, JSA, as I talked about, uh, World's Finest because it's amazing, and there might be a few things. I don't know what I'm going to do with the Dawn books. I think I'm going to just, like I said, read it all on the app. It's a perfect opportunity. It's going to be... It's only going to come out a month later, and there's, there'll be opportunities to talk about them. So um, this has really changed my comic buying. Digital has really changed my comic buying. What a difference from, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And then a quick heads up, go check out Resurrections Podcast Episode 164 with Al Sedano and myself as we take a look at the third issue of History of the Marvel Universe by Mark Wade and Javier Rodriguez. We did the first two issues, now we're on the third issue, and eventually we'll pick up and finish out the series. That particular podcast dropped on November 27th, and in many ways it's probably a good um, kind of like companion to what I'm doing with Marvel Saga Monday. All right, feedback. You know where to send it to me, Peter, at thedailyrios.com. Go to the website, thedailyrios.com, and leave your comments. Check me out on Instagram at thedailyrios. Follow my Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Follow me on your favorite podcast catcher. Let me know if I need to put the show anywhere that uh, I'm not already. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 591, for Sunday, December 4th, 2022. Talk to you soon. White. A blank page or canvas. His favorite. So many possibilities.